0: This is the Life Venia Church Podcast. Today we hear from Don as he introduces a new series looking at the Book of Ephesians. Hi everybody, good morning. Great to be with you this morning. Um, Nicola reminded me that a lot of you won't know who I am. You'll not have seen me. Um, So she asked me to just tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, As Adam said, I'm Don. Uh, I'm a retired architect, married. Uh, my wife can't be with me this morning, I'm afraid. Uh, between us, we've got th- three kids, four grandchildren, and a grand dog. Um, Hugo, she's Sue. Yeah, that's, I'll not tell you about the kids. Um, we live in Morpeth, and uh, our association with uh, Life Vineyards has been, believe it or not, about 14 years yeah, we haven't been here all that time because we moved around a bit, um, and my wife's health issues meant we, uh, we couldn't get along uh, for quite a period, actually, but I guess we've been back about eight years now. Um, doesn't seem that long, but I'm sure that's about right. So, um, I, uh, we did a crazy thing just before Christmas. Six days before Christmas, we moved house. Oh. What a mad thing to do. So things are a bit uptight at the minute. Um, There's a lot of stuff going on, um, but we'll love to be in the new house. Uh, We're still in Morpeth, but much closer to the town centre. And I love, uh, what do I like to do? I love to paint. I like gardening. I'm going to get the opportunity to do that in the new house. Uh, But I think one of my greatest passions since I became a Christian some 34 years ago I was 40 years of age, became a Christian. Um, I love love Scripture. I love the Word of God. And I love studying the Word of God. So when Nicola contacted me earlier this week and said, would you mind stepping in for me to introduce Ephesians, uh, this new series on Ephesians? I was really pleased that she'd done that and terrified as well. Because Ephesians is... Probably my favorite letter in the New Testament. And I wonder, do, did I have enough time to prepare a message that would do this amazing letter justice? Um, you can tell, uh, tell me afterwards whether I managed it or not. The letter's been described by many people. Um, one said, it's the crown and climax of Pauline theology. Another said... It's the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of our holy Christian faith. Now, I'm not going to try and compete with those descriptions, but I am going to try in my own way to tell you why I think it's held in such high regard. So this morning, uh, because it's an introduction, I want to tell you a little bit about the background of Paul in Ephesus, um, give a very, very brief um, overview of The contents of the whole letter but then concentrate on the first chapter and to be honest I've only got time to look at part of the first chapter the first 14 verses. So what's the background? Well Ephesus was a principal port in the Roman province of Asia Minor. It's on the the west coast of what is now Turkey near Izmir. And although Paul had been in Ephesus before, he didn't go there on mission until the winter of 55 AD. Acts 19 tells us that after discovering a few disciples there, he entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. But Paul encountered quite strong opposition amongst the Jews, so he left them. And it says... He had discussions daily in the lecture hall at Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. Can you imagine 700 consecutive days of preaching from the Apostle Paul? Um, It blows my mind, but that's what happened in Ephesus. Now, it was only a few years later that Paul found himself in his first imprisonment in Rome in about 60, 61 AD. And it was while he was in prison that he wrote this letter, which we call Ephesians. He also wrote Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians. Ephesus was one of the seven churches that Jesus addressed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And it's believed that This letter was actually a circular letter that went to those churches. Ephesians is probably the same letter referred to in Colossians 4.16, which says, Paul says, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. It appears that after Paul wrote Colossians, he had a deeply stirring, um, expanding uh, revelation of what God was doing. He now saw the church as the body of Christ and God's instrument to confound and overthrow evil powers. And so he writes to elaborate on these themes, and this is what Ephesians is substantially about. To help try and explain why the letter is so highly regarded, it's been called the Alps of the New Testament. I want to draw on an analogy which was used by canon and theologian Tom Wright. I love Tom Wright's uh, uh, books. Has anybody ever seen the London Eye? Has anybody ever been on the London Eye? There, There you go. Amazing structure, Um, 32 capsules on this London Eye, each holding up to 20 people, and it rises as it turns, it rises up to 450 feet above the River Thames. It takes half an hour for it to do a full circle. So that gives people plenty of time to see all of the amazing sights across London, All the historic buildings and the palaces, cathedrals, abbeys, parks, uh, all of the gardens with Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament in the foreground. The London Eye in fact isn't just an amazing sight itself, it's visible from many parts of the capital but it's also the place that you'll probably get some of the very best views of the whole of central London. You'd probably have to go up in an aeroplane to do better. The letter to the Ephesians stands in relation to Paul's other letters rather like the London Eye. It isn't the longest or the fullest of his writings, but it offers a breathtaking panoramic view of the entire Christian landscape. From here, as the wheel turns, you get a bird's eye view of the one theme after another within early Christian thinking and reflection. God, the world, Jesus, the church, the means of salvation, Christian behavior, marriage, the family, spiritual warfare, all in this relatively short letter. It's as if Paul's looking down at Christian salvation from the vantage point of the heavenly places, gazing down at the great panorama of salvation and redemption, this wonderful and glorious work of God in Christ Jesus. Paul uses certain words in this letter, more than any other. He marvels at the mystery and the glories and the riches of God's way of of redemption in Christ. It's like someone used to strolling around London but now suddenly able to see familiar places from unfamiliar angles. To see how they relate to each other across the whole city. So the purpose of the letter is to reveal, to unveil the mystery of the church as no other epistle. It it reveals God's secret intentions. To form a body to express Christ's fullness on earth. To do this by uniting one people both Jew and Gentile, among whom God himself will dwell, to equip and empower and mature his people and thereby extend Christ's victory over evil. Paul carefully unfolds the process that God is using to bring the church to its destined purpose in Christ, to engage in battle with dark powers. But basic maturing steps need to be taken first. Before the church is called to walk, she's taught to walk. Before being called to walk, she's taught where she stands. And so the epistle really breaks down into two sections. Chapters 1 to 3 describe the believer's position, who we are in Christ, and it's this that enables us to stand firm. And secondly, the believers' practice how we are to live in Christ, covered by chapters 4 to 6. Today, I'm going to look at a part of chapter 1, beginning to look at the believer's position. And let me begin by emphasizing that these verses that I'm going to read, and in fact the whole of the, the three chapters, first three chapters, They're not just theological gas to be studied academically. They are truths. They are facts. They are what God says is real. The word heavenlies, which is used throughout this letter and elsewhere in Scripture, is really talking about the realm of invisible reality. Things which are true about life and the world, about the cosmos but which we can't see and we can't touch right now. Nevertheless, they are very real and they play an important part in, in our own lives. And it's this that Paul refers to in his second letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 4 he says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The eternal, unseen, invisible reality. Whenever I talk about this realm, I think of 2 Kings chapter 6, where Elisha and his servant find themselves in Dothan, surrounded by Assyrian masses of Assyrian troops and chariots, They've come to capture Elisha, who's been um, telling Israel all about uh, Israel's secret war plans that God's revealed to him. The servant, Elisha's servant, is terrified when he wakes up in the morning and sees all of these Assyrians surrounding the city. And Elisha simply says, don't worry, those who are for us are more than those who are against us. And the servant's like, what are you talking about? They're going to kill us. And Elisha simply said, Lord, please open his eyes. And immediately his servant saw hordes of fiery angels and chariots on the hillside. That's the unseen realm. So as we read these verses... Try to bear that unseen realm in mind. Try to remember that these are real things. These are facts that we're talking about here. Chapter 1 of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus. In Ephesus isn't in the earliest texts that we've got. That's why we believe it's a circular editor. That was added by somebody later. The faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works, works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory." And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amazing, amazing words. In most of Paul's letters, after the initial greeting, He starts telling the church what he's been praying about when he thinks of them. He will come to that later in the latter part of chapter 1. But pride of place here in the opening of this letter goes to this amazing series of uh, verses. I say series of verses. uh, Actually, verse 3 to verse 14 is one sentence. It's, a continuous stream of worship. Don't try reading it as one sentence. I haven't got the breath for it. I think Paul's intention is to set the right context for all Christian prayer and reflection. That is the worship and adoration of the God who has lavished his love on us. The throbbing message of Ephesians is to the praise of his glory, to the praise of God's glory. The word glory appears eight times, referring to the excellence of God's love, his wisdom, and his power. He's the God who made the world, and who's now made himself known to us in Jesus Christ. As far as Paul is concerned, any picture of God which doesn't have Jesus in the middle of it is an absolute distortion or a downright fabrication. The entire prayer, all 11 verses of it, is woven through and through with what God has done in Jesus the Messiah. The recurrent term, in Christ, sums up the Christian position. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. He chose us, In Him to be holy and blameless. He foreordained us through Him to be adopted and accepted. He gave us redemption in Him through forgiving our sins. He set His plan in Him. He intends to sum up everything in Him. We've obtained our inheritance being predestined in Him because we have set our hope on Him. And we have received in Him... We sorry, we've been sealed in him with the Spirit as the guarantee of what is to come. With these sweeping strokes, Paul sets out this series of foundational statements. I think when a man begins with God like that, you know that he's going to be real. What he says is real. I don't know about you, but my problem often is that I don't start thinking my thinking with God. I'll often start it with myself, with my experience, and I've only got a partial view of the truth. So I narrow the range of my vision down to what's going, what I'm going through at any particular time, what's happening around me. And I don't always see this in relation to the whole reality of life around me. Paul's prayer here is really a celebration of the larger story into which every single Christian story is set. Every story of individual conversion, of faith, spiritual life, obedience and hope. And it's only by understanding and celebrating the larger story that we can hope to understand everything that's going on in our own smaller stories and so observe God at work In and through us. Verses 4 to 6. Celebrate the fact that God's people in the Messiah. Are chosen by grace. We've heard that in the songs this morning. And I think God's grace is perhaps the most mysterious thing of all. God the creator. Chose us in him. Before the world was created. He foreordained us to himself. Now to many people, including many devout Christians, that is a shocking statement to make, almost unbelievable for some people. How can God choose some people and not others? Some people have suggested answers, but I think we need to be very careful when we try to address this issue. Paul emphasizes later, well, even in these prayers, that everything we have in Christ is a gift of God's grace. In the next chapter, he'll declare that before this grace reached down to us, we were dead and needing to be made alive. We couldn't lift a finger to help ourselves. Our rescue had to come from God. God. It is God who has chosen us in Christ. Everyone who is a Christian is chosen in Christ. It is God who has predestined us. And then something that can sometimes be overlooked. Our salvation in Christ is a vital stage, but it is only a stage on the way to God's much larger plan. Paul's second letter to Timothy points us towards the mystery of God's eternal counsel and will. He says that God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. God's plan is for the whole cosmos, the entire universe. His choosing and calling of us, his shaping and directing of us, in the Messiah is somehow connected with that larger intention don't ask me how but God's got that plan for us God's will is a mystery to us he is infinite and eternal we are finite and sinful how could we ever possibly fully see and understand his will If we're ever tempted to sit at God's unfair, I think we should do what Job did. Put your hand over your mouth and consider who you're talking about. When Job did that, he confessed his ignorance, his smallness and his frailty. If you're a Christian this morning, I believe you should be thanking God for the mystery of his will. Then in verses 11 to 14, Paul speaks of our inheritance and the spirit. I've said before that stories in the Old Testament often point towards realities which are more fully realized in the New Testament. So for example, part of the meaning of uh, Israel's exodus from Egypt was that they were now free to set out to claim their inheritance. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, led this way and that by the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. The presence of the Holy One in their midst was dangerous. It'd be foolish to grumble and rebel, as some found out to their cost. But God's presence was their guarantee that they would get to their promised land in the end. And of course, they did Now in these verses in Ephesians, Paul is really talking about the new exodus, the new inheritance, the new wilderness wandering that we all go through on our way to the new promised land. But where is this new promised land? What's this inheritance all about? For many years, the answer that the church has given is heaven. But that's not what Scripture says. That's certainly not what Paul is talking about, either here or elsewhere. The inheritance Paul has in mind is the whole world, when it's been renewed by a fresh act of power and love by God. In verse 10, Paul has said that it's God's plan in the Messiah to sum up To bring into unity all things in heaven and on earth. God is, after all, the creator. He has no interest in leaving earth in its present rotten state. To make do for all eternity with a corrupted version of his original creation. God intends to flood the entire cosmos, heaven and earth, together with his presence, and his grace. And when that happens, the new world that results will have Jesus himself as the central figure. That is the inheritance that Jesus' people are looking forward to. At the moment, those of us who have come to know and trust God in Jesus, we ought to be signs to the rest of the world that this glorious future is on its way. And the sign that we ourselves have received, the sign that guarantees us our future, is the Holy Spirit himself. The Spirit is to the Christian and to the church what the cloud and the fire were in the wilderness. The powerful presence of the living God, holy and not to be taken lightly, leading and guiding God's muddled, often muddled and rebellious people to their new inheritance. But the Spirit is more than a leader and a guide. He's actually part of our promised inheritance because the Spirit is God's own presence, which is in the new world, will be fully and personally with us forever. The Spirit now marks us out. He stamps us with God's official seal as the people who are guaranteed to inherit God's new world. Can you imagine what this meant to Paul, chained up to his gods in prison, yet writing this prayer of praise to God, who has set us all free and given us such amazing blessings? Look back over the story that he tells in Ephesians as an act of worship. God has taken the initiative. God's done what was necessary at huge cost to Himself in Christ to buy us back from the slavery of sin. God has given us the Spirit as a sign and a foretaste of the whole renewal that's to come as we await our inheritance. Discovering these truths is meant to change our lives people Paul was writing was writing to. They were ordinary people like us. Some of them were slaves. Many of them. God's saints are people who are beset by struggles and difficulties. We have disturbances at home, at work, and troubles elsewhere. We're normal people, but one thing marks the Christian out. He or she is different. The original Greek term meaning saint is derived from the word holy. And holy means distinct, different, whole, belonging to God and therefore living differently. Paul wanted every Christian to understand God's grand purpose in raising Christ to triumph. That the church may know Christ's victorious fullness as we all resist evil and face life's trials. But first of all, Paul says the church has to be taught where she stands. So he's eager for these Christians to grasp fully the reality of their position in Christ. So let me finish by emphasizing once more what I think is the most striking thing about this astonishing bird's-eye view of the whole divine plan of salvation. It's the way in which Paul almost relentlessly sees that everything God has done, he has done in and through Jesus, the Messiah. Paul's letter finishes with this blessing. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. How tragically ironic that this is the very church that Jesus addresses in Revelation chapter 2. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Paul has shown us in this letter, I believe, how we are to keep our first love alive. We keep our first love alive, I believe, by worshipping the God who has done it all in Christ. As we read Ephesians today... To be strengthened and encouraged as Christians for the new tasks that lie ahead, it's imperative that we remember that all genuine Christian life and action must flow out of our love and worship of God. True worship of the one true God can't help tell and retell the amazing story of what God has done in Jesus the Messiah. I hope as we go through this six part series on Ephesians in future weeks, I hope you enjoy the amazing view that is offered by Ephesians. I don't find I don't think you'll find a better view anywhere.